This is Generation Education. Join educator Ruth Baynot Mondays at 11 a.m. as she explores modern parenting, physical, emotional, and social development from pregnancy through adulthood. Mondays at 11 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back and you're listening to Ruth Baynot on Generation Education 101.9 High FM. And we're going to be chatting this morning all about ears and about speech and why is it so important for children to be able to listen nicely. Not that our children actually do listen to us, <laughs> but on the more fundamental level to be able to hear properly and, of course, connect that to their speech. I have with me Naomi Brick. She is a speech therapist and an audiologist, and we're going to be chatting all about kids and speech and hearing. Good morning, Naomi. Good morning, Ruth. So, Naomi, let's chat a little bit about speech and audiology. First of all, I want to start from the very basics. I want to start at newborn stage. When a baby is born, what sort of tests are there that are done, your general tests, those that are automatically done to check babies' hearing? So usually at about day three, just before discharge, like day two or day three, just before discharge from the hospital, um, the audiologist will come around and do a, it's called an OAE, um, stands for autoacoustic emissions. And what that does is it's a screening test. So it's not if a child passes, then in all probability there are no hearing issues. Um, but if a child fails the test, then further testing is required. Right. So an obvious question, how do you test a three-day-old baby for hearing? Right. So they put a little thing in the ear, a little nap. The challenge is to find one that fits a very newborn ear. And what they test for, and that to present a sound at different frequencies, and the sound then gets sent through. What it essentially tests is the hair cells of the cochlea. So inside the ear, you've got, if you look in, you look into your ear, you've got your ear canal, and then you've got your eardrum, um, which you can't see. Um, you need a, you know, you need an otoscope to yes, see yes. the eardrum. And then there's what we call the middle ear, and then it goes into the inner ear. And then from the middle, from the inner ear, the sound then gets transferred along the nerves to the brain. So what this test does is it really just tests the efficacy of the the, the beginning section. So the sound goes through to the in it, to the cochlea, and if the hair cells move and they respond to the sound, then it gets, that movement then gets recorded. Wow. Okay. So I actually had these visions of of someone standing there with a bell and literally ringing a bell with the baby turning the head. I didn't even realize that it was such a actually a physicality thing. <laughs> so and then what you do and then basically all the baby needs to do is be asleep. It's completely non-invasive, so it's just um, a little bud that goes into their ear. Um, and the baby needs to be sleeping, which for newborns is not such a big deal. They usually sleep and they usually sleep through things. Um, so as long as the baby is still, then we're good. Sometimes a baby can fail the screening and not have a hearing loss. Sometimes there's stuff called vernix, which is a baby is coated in vernix when it's in utero. And that coating can still be inside the ear 
a few days off. There can be a little bit of vernix in the, in the air, which is why we don't test on the first day, because then usually the, the, the ears are a little bit clogged up. Assuming that the vernix is cleared out by the time we're testing, everything should be clear. Again, a baby might fail the test because of vernix in the air, or they might, might fail the test because of a hearing loss, or they might fail the test because they just don't have that hair cell movement, which some people don't. But we need it's important to rule out if a baby doesn't pass those that OAE test, it's important to understand why they're not well, and then absolutely. further testing would be necessary. Yes. That's why we can also get a false positive. So you can also get where a child passes the test but they actually do have a hearing loss. Um less likely, but it is still a possibility because if it's a screener, it's not a diagnostic tool. Right. And uh, just to point out to the listeners that what we've done is we've asked Naomi's dog to bark in the background, seeming as we are talking all about hearing, <laughs> to see if the listeners can filter out the, the barking and listen just to us. So it was intentional. <laughs> uh, so Naomi, now we've spoken about the first of the baby at three days old and whether they have or haven't got a problem. Now mommy takes baby home. If mom has been told, look, we've picked up a problem, what would be the next step? And as you say, there can be a false positive. What should moms be looking out for and what can they do at home that are simple, practical things to keep an eye on hearing? Let's start with what happens if it's negative. Um, so the audiologist Doing the test would counsel mom and tell her exactly what needs to be done. Usually what needs to be done is they do the test again. And um, when do they do that? So at a time that's convenient. Okay. You can bring the baby through to the room. The younger it's done, the better just in terms of in terms of the baby sleeping and just not fidgeting in their sleep as babies get older. Um, as they kind of pass that six-week mark, they become a bit more busier and keeping them still is not as easy. So we right. try and do it sooner rather than later. Um, but OAEs can be done on any age. I mean, the OAEs can be done on you and I. Okay. So there's no, there's no real time limit on it. But again, it's just, it's a good screening tool to use to try and pick up severe problems from the very beginning because language acquisition takes place from day one. Communication yeah. starts taking place from day one. And that's really something I'd like to emphasize to the listeners is all forms of communication development start taking place from day one. That starts from you talking to your baby, from sounds around your baby and your baby being able to listen, as well as your baby being able to communicate with you. Obviously, the level of communication and the type of communication evolves and becomes more complex as this little tiny human develops and grows. But those first cries to say, I'm hungry, that is communication. I'm, I, am, I have a need that I, I need to be fed and have a need that needs to be met, and I need to communicate that need to you. That is communication. So, Yeah, that's why they both connected, the speech and the hearing. I mean, we can actually hear when a person who has got a hearing problem, you can often hear their speech also tends to be more slurred or they speak a little bit differently, purely because they can't hear their own voice. So, yes. It's actually called deaf speech. When you know what it is for, it's quite easy to... It's quite a distinct type of speech. Yes. Where there's specific frequencies that, um, that are not being said. So there is, there is definitely that link between the hearing and the speaking. But before I get to that, I just want to go back to answering your question about, um, what do you do if there's a false positive? Well, you don't freak out. 
if the OAEs have come back positive, in all likelihood, everything is fine. But it's still important to monitor development. And you just know that you ticked one thing off the box. And it's really, I wouldn't, for, for those that are more, um, you know, pretend to be more anxious and worry more, and this is not something that I would worry about. I would say once it's done, it's done. Can a hearing loss be picked up later for sure? Can other things affect hearing for sure? But this is not something that you really need to worry about. And then we, we need to look at that development. So back to the connection between the hearing and the language. Obviously, in order to speak, one needs to be able to hear. So in order to make sense of speech, one also needs to be able to hear. It's interesting because communication does still develop in a deaf baby. It just develops in a slightly different way because the, the input that they're getting is not um, it's not the same. So they, you know, if you do sign language with a baby, their their expressive their language through sign language will be better, um, or they can communicate through that avenue. Um, but in terms of verbal communication, one needs to be able to hear all the sounds accurately in order to produce them. That's it. And I mean, um, as I'd like to mention, that all our senses, and I'm talking about our basic five senses as such, because we do have some inner senses as well, but all our senses work together in order for them to all be functional. And so right. with hearing and sound and touch and feel, all of that incorporated together develops as a whole. And I just want to go a little bit back again to the hearing because our ears also are what helps us to balance. Yes, definitely. So it's also um, in the inner ear, but it's a different section of the inner ear. So when we do the OEs, we measure it in the cochlea, but there's also little loops in that inner ear that have got fluid in them, and that um, that is what determines balance. Okay, and and a question that I actually am just thinking of now, what about a baby that has got a hearing loss? Does that affect the balance or is it two separate things that, how does that all work? There definitely is a link between the two. I think it would depend on the individual. It depends on whether it's a bilateral loss. If the the hearing loss is equal on both sides or if it's only on one side, um, that can affect balance. You can also have babies whose balance is affected, their hearing is fine. So while there is an intrinsic link, there's not necessarily it's not necessarily um, cause and effect. It does make sense, and I like how you mentioned about the bilateral. Something also I didn't think about. In terms of you were asking what mums can do once they once they brought baby home. Once you brought baby home, you can love them as much as you can, and you can play with them. And remember that you are their favorite toy. For the next couple of months, doesn't matter what fancy equipment you're going to buy and what fancy toys you're going to buy. For the next good couple of months, you are their favorite toy. Um, and exploring that relationship together. When I say you, it's quite that's quite exhausting on just the mom. Um, it's really all the primary figures in the baby's life. So mom and dad, or um, whoever the responsible adults are that are raising this child. If they are siblings, the people in the baby's life are really the most exciting. So talking to the baby, singing to the baby, letting the baby know what you're doing. One should just chat to a baby as if they were, you know, as if you're chatting to somebody else, you're just chatting a little bit more. So while I wouldn't necessarily say to somebody else, oh, I'm making a cup of tea now, I'm going to go and sit down, or are you hungry? You know, you're just going to talk your day through to the baby, especially as the baby gets older. Really 
one should feel tired of hearing one's own voice if you are staying at home with it. If you are staying at home with a little person all day on your own, at the end of the day, you should be tired of hearing your own voice. That's, that's how, how they, yeah, but that's how they're learning. Way. As you, as you say, as you're making that cup of tea, you're saying to the baby, I'm making a cup of tea. And the baby is actually learning. Mommy's doing this. Mommy's cooking. Now I'm going to have some food. And you've been telling the baby all of this and this is how they develop their language skills. Right. And, you know, so too when the baby's, you know, drinking, oh, that's delicious. This is such yummy milk. And you're giving the baby that language. Something that I tend to do with my own kids, would love to sit down and actually research this theory properly. And I haven't actually looked to to look at the research writing of it. So it's really my own opinion. But I do think it has some validity in it. Is waiting for your baby to cry before you feed it. So for those of you that are feeding on demand, you can still feed. Sorry, for those of you that are not feeding on demand, for those of you that are feeding every three or four hours, you can still wait. You can still feed at that time. But I would just, you know, maybe give a sip and then stop. And, and let your baby communicate to you, I want more or I want. I've heard that it is becoming something that is becoming more the trend and kind of becoming more less rigid so that you're not having to stick to the clock and say, all right, I'm on a three-hour or four-hour schedule and almost starting to listen to your baby. Right. And again, I wouldn't, you know, for those that are feeding on, on schedule, you can still fit this theory within your schedule. But I think allowing the baby, um, I'm, I'm not advocating to let your baby cry for five hours. That's really just one little peep. But just to say, hello, I want something. I'm ready to eat now. And you fulfill that need. Yes. Um, teaches them that I have a voice, I have an opinion, I have a need. When my, when I use my voice, my needs get met. Mm. And also there's different cries for different things. And baby learns how to make the different sound and mom learns or the caregiver learns how to listen to the different sounds. So knowing that maybe one sound isn't about food, it's I'm tired or I want a bath or I want to play or I want attention. So knowing the different sounds. Most definitely. But I want to also just say, you know, we all be talking about typical development and most, you know, most conversations circle around typical development. But my experience, typical development is less typical than we think it is when it, throughout the whole process of development. I mean, if we're just looking even what puts babies at risk for any type of developmental issues. So if we're looking at the, the pregnancy, the mom's pregnancy and how the baby was in utero, you know, how, if that went through without any problems or with problems, the birth process, and then the actual, you know, neonatal ICU, non-birth weight, blah, blah, all the different components that um, that put a baby at more risk for developmental issues than others, along with just your typical development. I think we are all geared to think that typical development is the norm, yeah. that when something abnormal happens or out of the normal happens, we freak out and also we get a little bit like shy, like, oh, this shouldn't be happening. What have I done wrong? Um, and I just want to just put it out there that it's so much more normal and more typical to have atypical development than anything else. There is usually, I always say one thinks that from, from conception to, to development, everything is fine. And most people have had some glitch somewhere along the way, whether it's fertility, whether it's 
pregnancy without issues, whether it's a birth without issues, whether it's, whether it's development without issues. So when it comes to development and it comes to the input that we give to our children, um, I think it's, it's so important to know that you give your child the best that you can at any given point in time. Um, and if anything worries you, it's okay to let some, it's okay for something to worry and it's okay to ask yes. around and find uh, out whether what you're worrying about is something that's worth worrying about or something that is not necessarily worth Yeah, well, I've got a little about. saying that I always say, rather be a neurotic mom than a sorry mom. Not saying that we all need to run around being neurotic and hysterical and sitting in doctor's offices. But as a mom, you generally do have that gut feeling. And when you have that worried feeling, get it checked out. It's all okay to do that. But on the other hand, just enjoy your baby. Don't worry too much about stuff that isn't happening. It's so important to also be aware of that. Naomi, I want to move on to in terms of speech and oral, and I want to touch a little bit on tactile defensiveness and how it all ties in with eating and all of that. Let's chat a bit about that. Okay, so again, we're starting from day one. Day one, your baby needs to have its first feet actually within the first hour. So we're really starting from the beginning. Um, it's very common for there to be latching issues. If there are, there are lactation consultants, the nurses are around. Um, and it's also very common for a mom to not be able to breastfeed and move straight to the bottle, whatever it is. However it is, your baby has to feed from the beginning. And that feeding process is going to start developing there. We use the same muscles for eating as we do for speaking. So that whole sucking vibe from the beginning is already exercising the muscles that this baby is going to be using for babbling and for talking later on. If a baby is unable to latch and suck initially and they need to go straight onto a tube or being peg fed or if, it, if there are any major complications it's really important to still keep that mouth moving and to still give them that input so what we often what often suggest is at feeding time put a dummy in the baby's mouth so that the baby's still sucking a little bit and if you are in a situation like that where your baby is not feeding in the typical way please do consult with a speech therapist um, there are ways to still activate those muscles and get the baby developing appropriately to minimize issues later not everything is going to eradicate issues later but we always want to minimize issues later and i really think early intervention is the key so in terms of your oral development that's happening from the beginning from when they're already starting to suck and the verbal you know using your muscles to speak starts happening a little bit later in a couple of weeks when they start gurgling and then really from about six months they should start babbling Um, and this is all preparing them to be able to talk in terms of tactile defense, quite a large term. I think an OT in general is more um, more qualified to answer tactile defensiveness as a whole. Yes, um, yes. But yes, what? Sorry to interrupt in you. What? What I'm we I'm kind of thinking, and where I want to just focus on is you do get those children that are tactile defensive and have got sensory issues or are sensitive to certain things. I don't like to use the word issues because we all have our own thing going on. But you have those children who actually need the assistance and very often that tactile defensiveness does present as fussy eaters as well where they don't want to have different textures or 
different temperatures and it's often seen as, oh, my child's a fussy eater. But more so, it's actually probably just about the textures and about that sensory input. How can a mom help her child to actually deal? At a sensory level, one can either be hypersensitive or hyposensitive. So hypersensitive means you are oversensitive. So um, something that to other people might seem non-extreme or blah, blah, it's a non-event for somebody that's hypersensitive in their oral region, that little bit of touch might feel actually painful. You know, a hypersensitive child will be will need more input in order to feel. And the hypersensitive, so the, those children will often present as um, they might stuff their mouth with food because they need more input in their mouth or they might constantly be putting things in their mouth because they're seeking more and they're needing more input in their mouth versus somebody who's more regulated. I think the first step is to try and get to know your child. In my opinion, the less of a mission feeding time is, the less of a mission it's going to be for the child. Obviously, there are times when, well, let, me, let me backtrack a step. There are times when a feeding issue may develop because of environmental environmental issues, whatever that is, whether it was an experience or, or a trauma or whatever. Um, and there are times when eating will be an issue because of internal stuff. That that's just the way the baby is. The baby is born hypersensitive or hypersensitive or with certain aversions, and that's got nothing to do with how we how we do things. But that doesn't mean that we can't intervene. We can still intervene. What we want to do is we want to avoid creating any issue. And the way the best way to avoid creating issues is not to create issues. So the more relaxed, I think the more relaxed one is around feeding time with your baby, um, the more relaxed your baby's going to be. Um, I've often had moms also have come in and said, you know, my baby's not eating, but they're having a gazillion bottles a day. So yes. if you want your baby to be eating, feeding them just after they've had a bottle, they're not hungry, they're not going to want to eat, and you're not going to force them to eat either. So happy baby, know that your baby should be hungry as much as possible, and just create a pleasant, happy vibe would hopefully help to not create any further issues. Obviously, if, if there's a huge hump about eating and there's this huge tension about it, and, oh, my God, you have to eat, and shoving the food in the baby's mouth and the baby really doesn't want to eat. And I think this is something also just to be aware of with caregivers. And there are different cultural norms. If you do have somebody looking after your baby who is of a culture where you have to feed the baby, you feed the baby where the baby wants to eat or the baby doesn't want to eat, I'm going to put the food in the baby's mouth, and that does happen. That can also build an aversion. The baby just really doesn't want to. They're not going to eat it. Babies listen to their tummies. They're not like adults. So if they're hungry, they're going to want to eat. And if they're not hungry, they're not going to want to eat. They're not like us. They don't carry on eating when they're not hungry. <laughs> I wish I still had that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, we, we're nearly running out of time. So I just want to quickly ask you, you mentioned about oral stimulation where it can be hyper or hypo. Could that also be with our auditory as well? Completely, with all our senses, with all our senses. So that's where an OT and a speech therapist, there's a lot of overlap because the OT, with all the senses, the speech therapist is more specific on the, you know, with our oral sensations and our auditory sensations or what we hear, what we're feeling in our mouth and what we're hearing in our ears. But any sensation, it can be visual, it can be vestibular. Um, so that's balance, it can be proprioceptive, it can be, there are so many different types. There's our five senses that we learn and then the other ones that the OTs learn. So any sensory system can be hyper or hyper and usually there's both. 
So sometimes it'll be too much, mm-hmm. sometimes it'll be too little. And what you want to do is you want to regulate it that you can get the perfect amount of stimul- the perfect amount of, of interpretation of a right. of a stimulus. What I wanted to just say is. Sorry, on that and then also with, with the feeding issues is if there is an issue seek out there usually are ways to intervene and the and, and really the key for me is early intervention whether it's about the hearing or the talking or the feeding or the eating or the w- mouthing or whatever it is early intervention really really is key and i know most people don't know this but speech therapists can be on your team from literally day one so if you if there's a high-risk pregnancy if there's issues that one predicts that there could be issues with the baby from birth. You can have a speech therapist on your team from day one. And if issues only progress later in life and you discover them later, as soon as you discover them, you can get a speech therapist on your team because the earlier you intervene, the less likely there are for issues to compound and become more complex later. Yeah, Naomi, you've given us so much information and there's so much more that I'd love to explore. I'm going to ask you that one day we've got to have you back again so we can chat even further. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, as I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm thinking about drooling and I'm thinking about dummies <laughs> and I can also think about uh, certain uh, hearing conditions. And oh my gosh, there's yeah. so much I still want to ask, but we have run out of time. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your value valuable information and something that definitely I've taken away from this is I liked how you mentioned that when you go to your therapist and the therapist asks you about in utero and how the pregnancy was and how the birth was it's something that yes when you do go and you always fill in those forms and everyone asks it's actually nice to hear it from a therapist who's saying this is the reason why we ask those questions so important to know the baby not just from the day they were born but from the day that they were in utero going forward thank you for all this valuable information and we'd love to chat again soon Thank you so much. It's really been such a privilege. Thank you. Pleasure. And you're listening to Ruth Baynard on Generation Education. I've been chatting with Naomi Brick. She is an audiologist and a speech therapist. And don't go anywhere because coming up after this, lots more.